But I bet if you told a thousand people you're playing a game and you have the following policy changes to make, uh, make sure that everyone graduates from college, make sure that everybody is healthy, make sure that racism is eliminated, that, that as many people would pick those choices as would pick create a new WPA or raise the minimum wage or create a bigger earned income tax credit as the solution. But in fact, my argument is that all those other things that improve the relative competitiveness of people, all of which are good, aren't going to solve unemployment or poverty. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that produces content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with David Reamer, who is author of Putting Government in Its Place, The Case for a New Deal 3.0. He's also the author of The Prisoners of Welfare, Liberating America's Poor from Unemployment and Low Wages. David is a senior fellow at the Community Advocates Public Policy Institute and senior advisor for Social Security Works. David's service during the past four decades has ranged from preparing city and state budgets to advancing major reform in state and national employment, income, health, and education policy. David, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be on your show, Evan. It's a pleasure to meet you and uh, share uh, this discussion for the next hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, whatever it takes. Well, it, it's going to take a lot longer than that, but we'll we'll try to make the audience uh, stay interested in the next hour or so. So I would love to hear about your background. So could you begin by talking about what first got you interested in policy and politics? Well, the, the story begins uh, in the, in the, near the place where I was born. I, I was born in central Pennsylvania, a little town called Belfont, which is the county seat for Center County. Uh, I was born there because even though we lived in nearby State College, the site of Penn State University, where uh, my parents live, where my father taught at Penn State, didn't have a hospital at the time. Uh, so uh, my, uh, my dad actually had to hitchhike back and forth in order to visit my, my mother uh, at the hospital. I grew up there uh, in the 50s and early 60s before moving to Milwaukee, where I now live. And towards the end of that period, especially in the early 60s, as as you and many of your viewers and listeners will know, it was the, the height of another important round, uh, a very key round of the civil rights movement. Um, my, my parents were New Deal Democrats. Um, my father became pretty actively involved in the local effort to support civil rights. Um, he, for example, was involved in, in organizing a, a boycott of uh, the barbers in town because they refused to cut the hair of black students at Penn State. Um, so as a result, I, I got my hair cut by him for a couple of weeks until that matter was, was uh, addressed. Uh, it, it was a small price to pay for, uh, but I suppose you could call that my, my first indirect contribution to trying to make you know, life better, fair for people left out and left behind. In, in 1963, my father joined a, a small group of Penn State students and faculty who went on the March on Washington. And uh, I, I always uh, have kept ever since then this, this button that he brought back. I think you can 
see it there. Mm -hmm. This is the official button of the March on Washington. March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, uh, August 28, 1963. Dad came back and uh, you know gave me this as a memento. I've kept it for all those decades. And it may be a, a good starting point to answer your question. Why was it a march for jobs and freedom? The, the conventional wisdom at the time was that everybody who wanted a job could have a job. And that if you didn't have a job, it was because you were lazy or because you were discriminated against or because you had a handicap, a disability of some sort. But the premise was that the jobs were there and, uh, and, and most of them were good. The civil rights movement quite appropriately included an effort to uh, create equal access to employment as well as to other, other rights, public accommodations, transportation, eventually voting rights. Um, but among many people uh, across the political spectrum, there was a, a belief that the jobs were there and that most of them paid well. Well, Dr. King knew better and the organizers of that march, which included uh, A. Philip Randolph, who's the head of the, uh, the Sleeping Car Porter's Brotherhood, and then his top aide, uh, Baird Rustin, they understood that the labor market itself had a lot of problems. And as, as you know, and many of your viewers know, uh, towards the end of his life, Dr. King, while not in any way giving up on the importance of civil rights, began to focus more and more on economic rights. When he was in, in Memphis where he was murdered, he was there to support the uh, garbage workers, the sanitation workers, trying to get better wages and, and, and other conditions. Um, that was a civil rights matter because such a high proportion of them were black, but it was also just about you know, wages, economic security. And he gave a number of important speeches towards the end of his career that focused on that. So I, I had this kind of in the back of my mind, um, jobs were important. What, what was wrong? What was the issue? What was the problem? Um, I, I, I didn't finish my schooling in the state college public school system. Uh, my father who had taught at Penn State for quite a while uh, ended up getting a job in Milwaukee with the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Our family moved uh, to Milwaukee and I went to a very different public school here. Um, it, was, it was an integrated public school. There's a long backstory to this. The Milwaukee School Board had sought to intentionally segregate the public schools in Milwaukee, but they, they didn't do that for the, the one school I attended, Riverside High School, which is in the northeast corner of the city of Milwaukee. Um, so for the first time, I. I was interacting in class and in extracurricular activities with um, young you know, black men and women and Hispanic men and women, uh, a very diverse student body, not, not just along um, color or, or uh, color lines, but also along ethnic lines. Uh, Milwaukee is a city that a lot of Eastern European immigrants had come to from Germany, from Poland, um, from, uh, from what was then called Yugoslavia. Um, and uh, many of my, uh, from Ireland, 
So many of my classmates who were white also were, were very diverse. I, I actually ended up writing a, a, a story about that for the local high school newspaper. I, I called it a school of immigrants. I, I talked about all the different origins that people had. This was intentionally a play on you know, the, the late President Kennedy's book called A Nation of Immigrants. Um, so I, I uh, graduated from Riverside High School in 1966 and went, went off to Harvard College. And um, I, I majored in modern European, which meant for me, English and French history and literature. But I had a pretty strong interest in public policy and politics, like a lot of, um, people in this era were, were now into the mid to late 60s. I was a volunteer on the Eugene McCarthy campaign in both New Hampshire and in, um, and in Milwaukee. In fact, I, by sheer coincidence, I happened to be in the corridor of the hotel just a few minutes after uh, Lyndon Johnson had gone on television to announce he would not be running for reelection in 1968. And who comes walking down the corridor but Gene McCarthy uh, Senator McCarthy. So that was my, maybe my, my first brush with American history, uh, or at least my second after my dad coming back from the March on Washington. I went to law school after graduating from Harvard, went, went to Harvard Law School. And I had uh, a, a number of, of just excellent professors there who had been involved in government and public policy. Um, uh, and uh, a number of them I, I, I want to mention. Uh, one was uh, Professor Abram Chase, who had been legal advisor in the State Department to both the Johnson, Kennedy and Johnson administration, was a real mentor to me. Uh, another one was um, Stanley Surrey, who was the author really of the concept of tax expenditures. In some way, you would, you would imagine that a class in law school on federal income taxation would be near the top of, of boring. But it actually was a fascinating one because Surrey brought to life the fact that deeply embedded in all these often arcane rules in the, in the tax system are hundreds of policy choices about you know, what should be taxed, how much it should be taxed, what should be exempt. And, and those weren't just technical tax decisions, they were, they were policy decisions. He came up with the idea of viewing the economic impact of all these exclusions and deductions and credits as being the equivalent of Congress appropriating money. So I, I began really at this point to, uh, to move away from sort of thinking in very broad terms about public policy and politics and, and to get more into the, the nitty gritty of it. Um, there was a, a, a quote, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was from a, uh, a former Harvard professor and later Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter, it may have been somebody else, but I, I heard it as attributed to him that, that justice was um, embedded in the interstices of procedure, which you know fits in with what was going on in the 60s, the, uh, the Gideon decision that gave people the right to counsel if they were indigent. The Miranda decision, which gave people who were suspect in criminal cases of the right to be informed, they had a right to a lawyer and anything they said could be used against them. 
and a whole series of other procedural changes. But I began to come to the conclusion that economic justice was embedded in the interstices of budget and the tax code. So this was a prelude to my later on becoming both a city and a state budget director. Before I finished law school, I, I spent a couple of years in Washington and I worked for a group called the Citizens Advocate Center. This was a group that was, uh, that my, my mentor Abram Shays had suggested I apply to. I was accepted and I worked there for a, a man named Edgar Kahn, a remarkable man. I, I, I met him a couple of years ago and I, I hope he's still well. And uh, he had uh, been involved after graduating himself from law school, working with uh, then Senator Bobby Kennedy and then later Sergeant Shriver in, in developing the, uh, the war on poverty and particularly in developing the legal services program. Um, while, while there, I got my first assignment in drafting a law. Uh, so again, this is part of the migration from concepts, abstract concepts of justice to budgets, to, to law, writing words, which if approved through a political process, become law and then transform for the better the lives of, of people who very often don't even know that that's what's happening but nonetheless benefit from it. So I, I was assigned to help then State Representative Shirley Chisholm's office. Uh, she was a, a remarkable African-American member of Congress from I believe Brooklyn, uh, and I believe was one of the first um, African-American uh, Democrats to, to, to run for the nomination at one point. Um, I, may, I may have some of my facts wrong here, but um, I was asked to draft a federal bill that would uh, create the Legal Services Corporation. Well, it, it, this was 1971. It didn't get passed that year, but a few later, years later it did. So, so I'm beginning to, again, get, get into the nitty gritty. And what, what was the Legal Services Corporation? Well, the, 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 going back to the Gideon decision, uh, Gideon versus Rain, Wainwright, that established the right of an indigent person to have legal representation in criminal cases where there was a risk of being deprived of liberty or in, in theory, you know, potential loss of life, uh, imprisonment uh, or a serious fine. But the poor didn't have any right or, or even coherent national program to representation in civil matters. So if you were being evicted or you were um, having your home foreclosed or you were having your refrigerator repossessed or you, were, or you were having your wages garnished and you were poor and you couldn't afford a lawyer, you basically were, were dependent on charity to have someone go to court and, and, and basically argue that this was not legal or that or that the solution wasn't a fair one to you. So the idea behind the Legal Services Corporation was to create a national network of law firms that represented the poor. And eventually that law passed. And that's why we have, if you will, divisions of the Legal Services Corporation still in existence all over the country. 
there are not enough lawyers in, in this organization, um, but it made a huge difference. Very often they were able to file um, class action lawsuits. So instead of just helping a single client, they were able to get court rulings that you know, ch change the rules for hundreds of thousands, millions of clients potentially. Um, so I, for me, this was about what, what a bill looked like. How, how did you actually write a, write a bill? What words did you use? What cross-references did you have? Um, how did you structure it? So I, I was engaged, if you will, in these years in a kind of informal apprenticeship in how you translate concepts of economic, social and economic justice into the, the nitty gritty of law, public policy. Um, the most important thing that I did during this period, this was 1971 to 73, was that I, I was asked to look at the effectiveness of what were then called job manpower programs. Federal, they were then called manpower. That, that wouldn't be what they'd be called today. Today, we would call them job training programs. Uh, they had names like uh, the Manpower um, Development and Training Act or the Neighborhood Youth Corps. The, the one that was, uh, you'd probably recognize and it's still around was the Job Corps. There were a number of these. And the question was, were they actually effective in getting unemployed people jobs? Um, so I, I, I learned a couple of things there. One thing that I learned was that um, before and after doesn't necessarily mean cause and effect. I, I came across a study of a Job Corps program in uh, Indiana, I believe. And it did show that after getting uh, the experience of being a Job Corps trainee, that, as I recall, there was an increase in employment, but it turned out that, that the program couldn't accept everybody who applied. So they did a kind of a random assignment like they do in a medical experiment. And it turned out that the control group that didn't get the Job Corps training ended up with more employment and better wages than the group that got the training. That's not a good uh, <laughs> right. achieving the, the goals of the program. So. Right. Well, why, why did that happen? Um, well, no one really knew, but the, the suspicion was that they remained back in Cleveland or wherever they had come from. And uh, they just went about applying for jobs, getting rejected, often getting accepted friends or neighbors would tell them about jobs and they would go through the process that young men and women normally do uh, when they're looking for work. They sometimes get work and they sometimes then move on because they prove to their employer, I'm a good worker or they get a reference. The people in the Job Corps program may have been getting technical skills. These people were getting on the job training and references. So that was the hypothesis as to why the, the people that didn't get in the training did somewhat better. But what it did was it, it, this raised for me the important question, well, what, what are the obstacles for unemployed people to getting work? So that led me to frankly, just do some browsing. This was obviously decades before the internet where you could easily get everything online. So I just ended up, you know, grabbing copies of 
Census Bureau reports and Bureau of Labor Statistics reports. And I, I came across information which, you know, was completely new to me, really um, eye-opening, although perhaps many of the experts already knew. I, I looked at the, at the characteristics of poor people. And it turned out that an awfully lot of people who were poor were workers. And a fair number of them were working full-time and year-round. So this, this created a, a huge question for me. What, why is it that if you're, if you're working, you have a job, um, you, you don't have the problem of, of being unemployed, that you end up being poor? So th this led me to just sort of wonder what was going on in the labor market. Why was it that this was happening? Well, I, I, I never lost that thread, finished law school. I had the great good fortune um, with the help of yet another law school professor, um, a fellow named Lance Liebman, who uh, uh, in my very first year, first class, first day, first hour of law school, he was the first law school professor I encountered. He later went on to Columbia Law School where he uh, had this extraordinary career as, uh, as Dean of Columbia Law for many years. And fast forward to uh, just a couple of years ago, he was kind enough to write one of the endorsements of my book. Um, but um, he helped me find a job working for this extraordinary governor of Wisconsin, Patrick J. Lucy. So right out of law school, uh, I, I got that job. I, I had an opportunity to work in the private sector for a, a big Boston law firm. I, I declined that. It was a fine firm, but I, I, I wanted to be a public interest lawyer and I wanted to be involved in public policy uh, as opposed to, for example, being in the attorney general's office or the, you know, the, the um, FTC or many of the little jobs that were available to to young lawyers. So I, I kind of narrowed my, my opportunities in ways that reduced the, the, the possibilities. So I was quite fortunate to get this job with, with Governor Lucy and quite fortunate to be working for this really legendary governor um, at a time when a Democrat, when the Democrats had just gained complete control of the state legislature and later on that, that control increased. So I had the chance to work with him uh, and some legislators in li literally uh, drafting and advancing numerous bills within the legislative process. So again, this was sort of a, a latter stage of my apprenticeship. Um, I was involved in um, drafting legislation to create uh, a voluntary school desegregation law for Milwaukee. Uh, the US District Court Judge John Reynolds had declared that the Milwaukee Public Schools was illegally segregated. This, this goes back to what I said earlier. Uh, the school board had consciously decided to segregate the schools and they had done so in such a clumsy manner that there was a, an ample record that they had done that. So the judge heard the case, you know, reviewed the evidence and said, this is illegal and ordered the, uh, the school district to desegregate. 
the legislature under Governor Lucy and, and a, a very strong leader in the state legislature, a state representative named Dennis Conta, who was also one of my mentors. Uh, I, 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 I basically, to say they asked for my help is maybe a bit, bit, bit much. I, I said, I'd be glad to help you as much as you want. And they said, okay. <laughs> so I was involved in drafting this bill to create a, uh, a school desegregation program. Later on, I was involved in drafting legislation to, to create a, a state public defender program. In other words, to take the requirement of the Gideon decision and turn it into a state agency that provided all across Wisconsin independent lawyers to represent indigents in criminal cases and then later on in mental health cases, juvenile cases. Um, and I, I'm mentioning these because what I'm trying to do here is explain that I, I became increasingly versed in how you take a, a broad idea, translate it into specifications, translate it into a bill draft, and then understand and work with elected officials to get that bill not just heard in committee, but passed by committee, passed by one body, amended by another body, accepted and signed into law by the governor. So this, this was a, a sort of um, self-guided tutorial, yeah. much of which was blundering. I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing or looking for, but the, the next phase in this process, and, I'll, and then I'll stop and then get back to you. And I'm, I'm sorry for going on so long. No, it's all right. I'm, I'm very interested. And I, I have a few questions that I'll, sure. I'll wait till you finish this but, next point. But, but about the time I began working for the governor, I also got to meet uh, a group of labor organizers. Um, uh, and I, I, I can name some of their names if you like, but this was a group of uh, labor organizers who are working for the United Farm Workers, working for Cesar Chavez. They were, they had, they'd been out in California um, doing a variety of work, including literally going into the farm fields uh, and getting people to sign petitions and dealing with bullies from the, the sort of the company union that was trying to, to break the farm workers. So these were people who had direct organizing experience with low-income people. I, I met with them and over the next several years, we, we decided that, you know, that what was needed was a national organization that focused on changing federal policy, local policy, state policy, but ultimately federal policy to get unemployed people jobs and get unemployed people higher wages and better benefits. Um, the, the initial name was, was uh, I can't even remember what the initial name was, but later on they, they changed their name to Congress for a Working America, trying to emphasize that the goal was to get the United States Congress ultimately to create a new set of laws, building on the New Deal, building on the Humphrey Hawkins bill uh, that you know, the, the, at that time still living, Senator Hubert Humphrey and Gus Hawkins, Representative Hawkins from California had, had introduced to, to, to get Congress to pass legislation to continue what I didn't fully understand at the time, but basically 
put in, fill the gaps and the, and the flaws of the original New Deal. So, um, so in the course of working for Governor Lucy and later on in other jobs that I held, I, I worked continuously on my own time with this group. And when we began to have some success over the years, um, we, we were able, for example, as, as the organization morphed and changed to get um, the state of Wisconsin to create a transitional jobs program, a kind of new version of the CCC, the WPA, very small program that nonetheless offered jobs to unemployed people who couldn't find work easily. We were involved in uh, creating a state supplemental earned income tax credit. It, it was the first in the country to both be refundable, which technically means you get the credit even if you, uh, even if um, the credit exceeds your tax liability. So it actually paid people even if they didn't owe any more in taxes. Uh, and also it was, it was unique, not only being in refundable, but adjusting for family size. The federal EITC didn't do that yet. That waited till President Clinton to be adjusted for more than one person, more than one worker, really more than one child, more than one child per worker. And under President Obama for three or more. I got heavily involved in healthcare. And for a while, a lot of people would have defined me as a healthcare lawyer. So I was involved in, in uh, improving the Medicaid program, expanding Medicaid through a, a program called Badger Care. Um, I'm, I'm smiling here because I, I know you grew up in Michigan where your mascot is the feared Wolverines. Oh yes. <laughs> I've got that right. Uh, and of course, in Wisconsin, the mascot is the badger. And so a lot of things are named badger. So uh, working with the Republican governor, Governor Thompson, and his secretary of health services, a former state legislator, very, very excellent uh, appointee named Joseph Leon, uh, they decided to uh, call this Medicaid expansion uh, badger care. So this was an expansion of Medicaid before people were talking about Medicaid expansion, but I was heavily involved in that legislation, including um, helping to persuade the state legislature to adopt the plan on a bipartisan basis, and then persuading the Clinton administration to grant the necessary waivers. So I had, you know, I was involved in the administrative aspects of it, the state legislative aspects of it, and the federal waiver administrative aspects of it. Um, so I, I uh, uh, but all of these things were meant to help unemployed or low-wage workers, make work available, make work um, pay more, you know, through the, the supplemental earned income tax credit, and then to help workers or low-income people, but, you know, we're talking mostly about workers because the original Medicaid program covered people on welfare, people getting disability benefits. It didn't cover low-income workers by and large. So this initiative was meant to expand Medicaid to this vast group of low-income workers. So that's what that's why it was so important. Um, so I began kind of working on all these fronts, mostly during a period when I was, where um, my day job was working for uh, the mayor of Milwaukee, a man named John Norquist. He was mayor from 1988 until 2004. 
and I was his budget director, administration director, chief of staff, on and off for almost that entire period. Uh, so let me stop there. I've, I've, there's, there, there's, it, it's an incredible uh, experience on a lot of people outside of government who don't understand the, the bureaucratic implementation of policy, how policies and legislation is made. Uh, the management of it, trying to get in the political will. I, it's very few people that have the experience in all of those levels and, and actually from passing a bill to actually implementing uh, a program. I Before we get into the rethinking government uh, framework that you laid out in, in incredible detail, I want to take a step back because I'm from the Midwest, as you mentioned, born in Cleveland, grew up in Michigan, lived in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And there in Wisconsin, I find a, a very interesting culture in the sense that you, like many parts in the Midwest, there was a large industrial base, immigrant working class communities. You have the Northern migration um, after the Civil War. And you have some extremely progressive places in Wisconsin, like in Milwaukee and Appleton and at University of uh, Wisconsin and Madison. But then you have these tremendous reactionary elements like the John Birch Society and Senator McCarthy and then you know, and Scott Walker and, and trying to destroy the public sector unions. How, how do we have, and, th and this is such a broad question, but you've, you've worked with Republicans, you've worked with Democrats and you've seen the evolution over time and where we are today. I guess within that context of these contradictions, how, how did you approach how you came to these policies? And it, it seems like the, if the Republicans were supporting a Medicare expansion, that um, is, uh, I, I think, better than many Republican governors today that don't even accept Medicare funding uh, to punish uh, the quote unquote federal government with their, when they're actually publishing the people in their state. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Being in oh, I, I have a, a lot. The, the first thing, just to clarify, the Medicaid expansion, Badger Care, that took place uh, in the late 90s when you know, Tommy Thompson was governor uh, and the legislature was, um, was sort of divided, I think, much more closely between Democrats and Republicans. That's different than what today we call the Medicaid expansion, which many blue and red states have accepted, but Wisconsin increasingly isolated as a red state that's refused to do that. So the but I, I think that, that the difference, frankly, between staunch Republican Tommy Thompson and the Republicans now who control uh, the legislature, no longer the governor's office, that's part of the story. Um, we, we have in Wisconsin, you know, four political traditions. It's, it's somewhat unique. Um, you know, going from left to right, we, we have a very, we had a very strong socialist party in Wisconsin, uh, literally, you know, card carrying socialists uh, were the mayors of Milwaukee, all the way, almost the entire period from 1910 to 1960. Uh, Emil Seidel, uh, Daniel Webster Hone and Frank Zeidler were the mayor for almost that entire period. And they were you know, proud socialists. Now, I, I should point out to any listener who isn't familiar with this, 
that they were what we call sewer socialists. That was actually an insult thrown at them by the communists, by the far left socialists, who said that these socialists, all they cared about was better sewers, better water systems, swimming pools, you know, good government. Material improvements? Yeah. Instead of uh, just ideolo ideological. Uh, to, which, uh, <laughs> to which the, uh, the socialist mayors, and there, were, there was a socialist majority on the city council for a while, big uh, control, big membership, if not control on the county board and several socialist members of the state legislature, they weren't embarrassed by it. I mean, they, they ideologically, they may have one day imagined that, uh, that the workers would become strong enough that they would take over the means of production and all of the kind of Marxist, you know, ideology rhetoric. But in the meantime, they wanted people to drink good drinking water. They wanted people to be able to flush toilets and take baths and dispose of stuff from factories without it getting into the water supply. They wanted um, garbage pickup to be efficient so that rats didn't crawl around you know, the, the, the dustbins. They wanted to be sure that people could go to swimming pools. They, they wanted to be sure that there was clean air to breathe, that there were parks, that there was recreation. They, they helped push what's called the lighted schoolhouses. So they were very important in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, all the way up until the, the 40s or 50s. So that was one stream of social and political power. The second stream was the Democrats. Until, until the 70s, the Democrats were pretty weak, almost to the point of pathetic. Um, the, uh, the socialists had sort of eaten a lot of their lunch, had, had sort of pulled away a lot of their support. Um, re remember that Wisconsin was the birthplace of the Republican Party. Um, and, uh, and there was, and I'll talk about the progressives in a minute, but a lot of people who might otherwise have been uh, Democrats were attracted to the progressive party. So the Democrats tended to be pretty weak. Uh, in the first decades, you know, the state became a state in 1848, the Republican party, I think first took power in 1856 or so. So there was a brief period of, you know, the Democrats having control. But after that, uh, they were a small party. Typically, they only held, uh, they only got elected in a few seats in the state legislature. And they only held, you know, office here whenever a Democrat would become president in Washington. And then the postmasters and the customs folks would, would be appointed Democratic loyalists. That changed beginning in the late 40s. There was a period briefly before that during the New Deal when the Democratic Party had a, had a brief revival um, and they won the governorship. One of fighting Bob LaFollette's sons, I'll get to him in a second, but one of his sons ended up running Phil LaFollette, running as a Democrat for governor. And the Democrats then took over a lot of the statewide offices, gained some power and did, and did a lot of, of good. I believe that's when Wisconsin adopted unemployment insurance in advance of the federal bill. But that, that was a brief shining moment. And then after that, the Republicans took over power. Um, and it, what happened in, at the end of the Second World War was a lot of returning GIs like Pat Lucy, um, Gaylord Nelson, 
a number of others formed something called the Democratic Organizing Committee. They met in Green Bay, I think it was 1948, and they consciously decided to wrest power from these old guard Democrats who really had no organization, no power, and beginning in the late 40s, all throughout the 50s, with Lucy as the lead in the rebuilding of the party, they, they took over the party and they began building power, running for office, running for every office. Uh, and by 1957, they had their first breakthrough when um, Bill Proxmire ran for the seat that had been um, uh, given up by, as a result of Joe McCarthy's death. This was, I think, the first time in a long, long time where a Democrat had won a statewide office. And then in 1958, Gaylord Nelson was elected governor, uh, and then so on. Uh, other Democrats began, began winning statewide office. Lucy eventually was elected in 1970. They took the state assembly. In 74, they took the state senate. And that, that sort of was just the time proceeding when I came back to Wisconsin. <laughs> Uh, so I, 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 I benefited from this rebirth of the Democratic Party. But my point, main point here is that that was new. The, the Democratic Party in Wisconsin was essentially moribund for almost a century. So that was the, the second stream. The third stream and the dominant stream in Wisconsin history was what you might call moderate to conservative uh, Republicans. Um, the party was founded here. I think Republicans elected almost all of the governors and controlled the legislature almost entirely from 1860 until, you know, the, the, the 70s with a couple of interruptions. There, there was a Democratic governor around the same time as Grover Cleveland, who um, I think his name was Peck, Governor Peck, didn't last all that long. And then again, in the, in the depression with Phil LaFalla, but one, people, one thing people have to understand about Wisconsin was the Republican Party was the dominant party for over a century in the state. And these were traditional, by and large, by and large, traditional conservative Republicans, not keen on government, uh, supportive of you know, minimum regulation, pollution, who cares about that? Workers get hurt in factories. Well, they should negotiate better contracts, you know, not real interested in either economic security or in uh, regulation. They were laissez-faire Republicans. And then the fourth stream was a kind of breakaway movement from the Republican party, the progressives. Um, there was a national progressive movement, as, as you know, uh, that lots of people were, were involved in, in Wisconsin, it started out as a branch of the Republican Party. And this is in like the 1890s, I believe, like right. Minnesota and, and right. uh, you have it in, in North and South Dakota. And it, it's also, I think the farmers um, reacting to uh, the, the, the price of gold changes and, and the loss of the US dollar um, and the greenback at that time. So they, they were just getting crushed. Um, right, in and, that and there, there also was a, you know, concern about railroads charging whatever they wanted to charge to bring things from, from farm to market. There was concern about the environment, about the stripping of, of the land. And so Lafala clearly was the, you know, the spearhead of this movement. And he, you know, ran for governor, was elected. Um, but his main focus, his main opposition 
was the rest of the Republican Party, even though he was still a Republican. He, you know, eventually he created this other party, the Progressive Party, uh, you know, under whose banner he ran for president at one point. Teddy Roosevelt took over as the as the candidate in the the election. Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, which um, some people say that three-way race enabled Wilson to win. Other scholars say, no, Wilson would have won anyway. But the larger point was that for much of its history, the uh, progressive movement was part of the Republican Party. It was a breakaway movement. And, and interestingly enough, um, Robert LaFollette passed away. His son, Bob LaFollette Jr., young Bob, uh, took that seat in the Senate as a progressive at first, as I recall, but then later on, he became a Republican. And he won the Republican primary in 1940 and then lost in 1946 to, you know, this, I think, a Winnebago County Circuit Court judge named Joseph McCarthy, mm. who played on his war record, Tail Gunner Joe, to defeat LaFollette in the 46 primary. Um, there, there's some evidence that part of why LaFollette lost was that the Communist Party urged its members to vote for McCarthy, hoping that the left of center Democratic candidate could then win the general election. That actually led to a book I once read suggesting that McCarthy was secretly an agent of the Communist Party because they helped him get elected. And then he so embarrassed himself in the Senate that he discredited the anti-communist movement. So who would do that except a communist? <laughs> um, so if you think that the idea of conspiracy theories and uh, all that fake news is new, uh, we'll, we'll all have to think again. But the, the, again, the main point I'm trying to make was that you've got these four streams, the, you know, the socialists, the traditional Democrats who were moribund, except for a couple of brief periods, and then became a, a permanent enduring party, to some extent absorbing those who otherwise might have been socialists and many who would have been progressives. They kind of pulled people in from both the socialist side of things and the progressive side of things. And then the Republican Party, which for a while was formally split between progressives and, and, and you know, sort of stalwart Republicans, I think is what they called themselves. But the stalwart Republicans were the dominant group for most of Wisconsin's history. So what you saw in, with Tommy Thompson and what you saw with Scott Walker and the current legislature is what you might consider an internal movement within the stalwart part of the Republican Party, moving from its kind of traditional position of being somewhat sympathetic to some of the progressive ideas, like funding the University of Wisconsin, high level of funding for public education, um, supporting conservation to some extent. That was, that was where Tommy Thompson was to where Scott Walker and the current folks are, which are you know, much more Trumpish, anti-intellectual, um, somewhat condescending towards the university, uh, opposed to you know, government parks and environmental stuff, opposed to raising the minimum wage, exposed to 
the second Medicaid expansion that I mentioned earlier. So, but, 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 but there still remains, even in the Republican side, some people who emotionally, intellectually are still rooted in the, the stalwart Republican, the Main Street Republican model, who believe in government, they just wanna be careful about its size and its functions. They're conservative in the traditional sense, as opposed to the current group, which is in some ways not conservative at all, very radical, wants to use government aggressively to promote their ideological uh, agenda. And it's always important to note that Scott Walker received a tremendous amount of funding from, I believe, uh, some of the Koch brother funding and some Wall Street funding uh, as a way to undermine unions. And I, I guess my point in asking that question, because I'm, I'm always fascinated with the history and the dynamics of these changing parties and the party realignment, this concept of moving from the Whig to the Republican, to the progressives, to now whatever they are, and uh, the Democratic Party changing from being the Southern Confederates to then becoming a part of the FDR New Deal. And I, I do believe that we are going through this party realignment right now. And it is, we may not know exactly how deep in the change is gonna happen, but there is no guarantee that the Republican party is going to maintain itself as a national party um, 20 years from now. I mean, we could see the Republican party become a regional party with the Democratic party splitting. So I, I just find it's very important to, to bring up these many different dynamics. And, and that's kind of, I think a good opening to talk a bit about your excellent website that guides the reader through a detailed plan and policy process that's laid out in your book, Putting Government in Its Place, The Case for a New Deal 3.0. And you have it uh, outlined in these sections. And uh, the first section is rethinking government. And you write, quote, set aside the debate about the size of government and concentrate on the more important question of what exactly we want the government to do. And you use this analogy as the government being a stage. So could you talk about why you use the metaphor of the stage and what you would like to see the government do in kind of this broad general opening? Sure. Well, let me talk first a little bit about, about why size is a, in my view, a, a somewhat silly measure. When I, when I would speak publicly, I, I would often point out that um, when your house is on fire, uh, your first thought, if you're a conservative Republican or otherwise, is not, this is a time to have a smaller fire department. I want government to do less. I want the fire department to not exist, or if it does exist, not come to put my fire out. Um, no, no one wants government to be smaller in a crisis like that. They want it to get there, get there quickly with competent people and good equipment and put the fire out. Democrats, on the other hand, are often stigmatized as favoring big government. But, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up in the 60s, as I talked about, part of the job we were trying to do was to have less government. We wanted government to stop uh, deciding that, you know, if you were black, you had to go here. And if you were white, you had to go here. We, the idea was get government out of the business of what store a person could shop in or what school their kids could go to or what job they might have. Um, and today, I, I do think a fair amount of the liberal uh, progressive, whatever you wanna call it, agenda is, is to have less government 
in certain areas. So big, little, more government, less government is to me a, a, whole, um, a whole tin can of red herrings. It, it doesn't help. The real question is, um, as you said, what do we want government to do? And, and my basic belief, if you step back and sort of think about it objectively, or I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess we all say that what we believe is objective and what other people say isn't objective. So maybe I should, shouldn't say it that way. But I, I do think that, that, that most people would agree that there are three broad functions that today we expect government to perform. The first is to provide public safety and health. Um, you know, this is why we have the armed forces. Almost nobody is against the idea of having, you know, a powerful and effective army, navy, air force, marines, coast guard, and so forth to protect us against foreign threats. Um, we can argue about how many ships, how many battalions, how many weapons, how much we should spend, but there are very few people who would say that no threat exists and that we should have none of the above. Um, and public safety extends to the local level. We, we all want police. We all want firefighters. I don't even think that the people who say defund the police are really talking about getting rid of police departments. They're talking about changing how the police are trained, about how many of them perhaps are, about how they respond to various you know, crises. But you know, I, when I talk to black and white and men and women and poor and rich, everybody wants the police to be there to respond effectively to crime. Um, most of us recognize that there's some people who perform very violent, wicked acts and they should be tried and convicted and sent to prison. You can argue again uh, about the death penalty. I, I'm against it. Lots of people are against it. Wisconsin doesn't have one. I'm glad of that. You can argue about lengths of sentences and parole and probation, but you know we, we, we want a system of public safety. And clearly in, in this era of COVID, anybody who doesn't believe in a system of public health, of the CDC being on the lookout for, uh, you know, for, um, viruses like COVID-19, like swine flu, like all the ones that we, that we talk about, you know, this is really important. And this goes all the way down to the local health department, making sure that restaurants are safe to eat in, making sure that, you know, the FDA making sure that food is inspected, the agriculture department playing that role as well. We wanna be sure that drugs that we take are, are safe and effective. So who, who's against this? We can argue about the details, but clearly this is a function of government. I would argue that there is now consensus, and this wouldn't have been true before the New Deal. This was really the New Deal's big innovation, that government has a role in ensuring a measure of economic security for the overwhelming majority. Prior to 1933, I think most people would have said government's job is to be sure that there's opportunity, but if, there's a lot of people unemployed. If a lot of people are poor, as long as they have the opportunity to compete for whatever jobs are there, the opportunity to get a good living, even if more than half, even if a vast majority don't get that, 
as long as there's a chance to knock on that door and go through it, that's enough. So, but I think today most people agree that government should, as a matter of policy, seek to make sure that people have work, that people have enough income, that people have protection in some form against the major risks that even a good salary can't, can't guarantee the risk of dealing with a, a catastrophic illness or long-term care, uh, the, the risk of kind of a good risk of having a child that wants to go to college, but the, the college costs 10,000 or 40,000 or $50,000. And how are you gonna afford that on a, on a typical middle-class salary? Um, so I think that there's consensus on that. And where the, where the debate is, is that, um, as to exactly how to achieve that. It's, that's not unreasonable. You, you have to remember, we're, we're arguing still about um, what's the right thing to do for public safety and public health. Those have been functions of government literally for millennia, certainly for centuries, and we still haven't got absolute agreement on that. It's hardly a surprise that when it comes to economic security, which has really only been a federal function since the 30s, that we're still you know, ha hammering out, what do we mean by that? What do we want? Um, as we'll get to it, what, 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 you know, did the New Deal do what we want or should we do something on top of it different than that? You know, some people want to roll back the New Deal, which I think would be a, a terrible decision. But that's the second major function. And the third major function is regulating the market. We have a market economy. People generally like a market economy, but participants in the market tend to tend to dump. Economists call it cost, cost externalization. They tend to, if they can get away with it, be open to think about and too often act upon lowering your costs by putting uh, chemicals in the water or in the air. They tend to think about um, maybe running a, a factory or an office that's not safe or producing products that maybe are risky, dangerous, or you know, not fully disclosing the facts when they're selling stocks and bonds. So I think there's, again, general acceptance of the idea that government needs to say to buyers and sellers in the market, there's some rules of the game. And the rules of the game go beyond caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. The rules of the game go beyond the ability of, a, of a, an injured party to sue in court for negligence, that government should say, we don't expect all the buyers and sellers to have enough information and enough expertise to, to implement caveat emptor. Therefore, government with expertise should come in and say certain, certain practices either are completely disallowed or they are taxed or there's a fee attached to them or we're going to try to educate buyers and sellers to avoid them. And, and there's four broad areas where this regulation takes place. Um, protecting the environment, which involves often protecting public health and safety. Protecting um, workers, protecting consumers, and protecting investors. My argument is that when you add those three broad areas of government activity together, this is the argument of the book, those three legs of the stool, public safety and health, economic security, including enabling people to get healthcare and get education, which you might call equal opportunity, 
of 90% of us to do what you know, the, the rich can do on their own. And then thirdly, properly regulating the market, that that provides a foundation upon which, a stage upon which the drama of social and economic life play out. And, and I actually believe, and this may come as a surprise given what you've heard and what viewers may be perceiving, and given my, my background working with Democrats, I'm actually a believer in limited government. I think that government should build that stage, lay that foundation and do it well and do it solidly. And in areas where it's, it, there's something missing, where the, the, the stage is missing a big pillar underneath it, we should build that pillar. Where there's holes in that floor, we should fix them so people don't fall through. But I'm not a big fan of having government do more than provide that foundation. Um, so as, as you, you've read in the book, I, I actually believe that if you design the economic security system correctly, we can get rid of what most people define as welfare, means-tested programs, programs that require you to be poor to get help and then punish you when you, when you do what you often want and what a lot of the rest of society encourages people to do, which is work, work harder, don't, don't refrain from marriage, if that's what you're otherwise inclined to do. Um, and more importantly, well, of equal importance, I, I think the government effort to interfere in the market in the sense of picking winners and losers, choosing particular kinds of consumption and investment is not government's business. So I, I think that an awful lot of public spending at the federal and state level and the local level, and, and a lot of tax policy which basically amount to having government say, we like this sector of the economy. We, we even like this particular firm. We're gonna give them a loan, a grant, a tax break. I would get government out of that business altogether. Instead of having, uh, in, instead of having the government pick winners and losers, my belief is that consumers and investors making informed choices within a properly regulated market and bringing into that market adequate employment, earnings, income, healthcare, and education, that they should be the ones to decide the, the direction and the shape of the marketplace. And if that involves more renting or more home ownership, that's, you know, that's the people's choice. Government shouldn't be coming in with a big thumb and saying, we want more of this and less of that. If people want to eat more corn and less fewer string beans or more lettuce and, and less rice. Those are private decisions. Government shouldn't be saying, we're, we're, we're insisting on more corn and more rice and, and you know, less fewer corn, string beans. That, that's, not a, that's not the business of government to do that. Um, government should not be encouraging particular kinds of earning, of, of, of making a living. Uh, earnings, dividends, capital gains, royalties, all the different ways you make money should be treated equally. Government shouldn't be saying, uh-uh, we're gonna tax earnings a lot more than dividends and interest and capital gains. Let, let people make choices as to the way in which they go about making money. So I, I am, I would argue in many ways, more conservative, <laughs> uh, more free market, than a lot of the people who claim that they are.
Well, I, I really appreciate that laying, laying out the vision where I think even in some of today's very charged rhetoric, even the sense of having a market, uh, some people will, will criticize even when it has done good. And you're also familiar, I'm sure, with Lincoln's quote that the, the wolf and the sheep def define freedom differently. So the wolf will say, you know, you're impinging on my freedom by putting those sheep in that uh, fenced in area. And the sheep will say, well, if the wolf is at my neck, you're impinging on my freedom as well. And so with, within that context and coming out of the 1950s and 60s where the tax rate of the highest earners and in income tax when there wasn't as large of a, a dividends process and things like that. I mean, under Eisenhower, it, it was almost up to 90%. And that, that came out of obviously wartime, New Deal, economic, um, the, the footing that, that, le that led to kind of the recovery of the United States going into the war and, and coming out of it. So the idea of a stage is a very neutral ground. And I, I've also heard that the, the government's a shield in the sense that it's either protecting this group or that group, or maybe it's protecting everyone within that group. Have you, have you heard that concept or that, or what, how's that metaphor? Um, yeah. Kind of with you, with the idea that some people are, are need to be protected against other people. And I think that that's what you said is that, it, you know, under certain regulations that allow for freedom, because it, uh -huh. you're ultimately talking about letting people to live freely, but in an equal manner, I believe. Well, I, I think the, sh the shield metaphor applies to you know, government regulation uh, that uh, functions to um, prevent dumping, prevent cost externalization. Um, part of why I, I didn't use that, well, part of it is I, I hadn't thought of focusing on that metaphor, but part of it is going back to Lincoln, it's, it's almost impossible to to find a Lincoln quote one disagrees with. I hadn't heard that one, but that's a great one. But what you don't want to do is have a shield that's used to protect a particular economic sector or business group. Um, I, I, I suppose I would make an exception if a particular economic sector or business or product is needed for defense purposes, truly needed, not just said to be needed, but really needed then government may have to come in and say, look, we, we need more aluminum or we need more whatever. But that's usually used as an excuse just to subsidize the aluminum manufacturers or whoever. Go government shouldn't shield particular sectors or corporations or individuals against competition. But the whole idea of a market is to have consumer sovereignty informed consumers moving their resources in terms of consumption and investment towards the goods and services that they want. That's gonna cause certain folks to lose. I don't want to shield the losers. Now, I do wanna be sure that as individuals are entangled in the process of loss, that they still have work that there be work available for them and a decent income. But I don't wanna shield anybody's 
store, anybody's sector of the economy. Uh, I don't wanna give anyone a special privilege or a special subsidy. Uh, let me give you one example of a, of a bad shield. Uh, I think it's still on the books. There's this entity called the Cranberry Marketing Committee. I, I refer to it in my book. And this is essentially, uh, I think it's sponsored by the US Department of Agriculture. Under their aegis, the cranberry growers get together and they decide how many cranberries each of them is gonna grow. So they're shielded against competition. You know, the, the purpose is to be sure that, that they profit as cranberry growers. Well, I, I, I love cranberries, uh, you know, wouldn't have a Thanksgiving without it. But I don't think it's the government's business to shield the cranberry growers uh, any more than back in the day they shielded the tobacco industry. Uh, that, that, that it, it, it's one thing to make sure that banks uh, you know, uh, are well-managed. They are trustees of our money. It's one thing to make sure that there's deposit insurance to protect investors. But I don't think we should shield a bank from you know, going out of business if it's poorly managed. Uh, and, and oh. I, oh, sorry, I, I'm just gonna push one more question at you and then we'll, we'll get to a little bit about some of the design principles and, and sure. move through uh, some of the, the other sections. So in the New Deal, you had bankruptcy of farms everywhere. And the idea was, okay, farmers need, it, it wasn't necessarily just about bailing out farmers when you come up with this parity farm pricing of how much does it actually cost to create a bushel of corn. When you, when you think about the, the plants, the equipment, the transportation, the labor, the rent, the interest, the inputs, everything that goes into actually creating that bushel and trying to figure out what that price is. Now, with that parity uh, farm price floor, you then essentially subsidize businesses that would go out of business. However, there is the argument that if you don't have an agricultural sector, uh, you're going to then be dependent on imports of agriculture, and that can lead to insecurity on the global realm, as well as insecurity in, the, in regional areas when you don't have enough food in areas. So how would you respond to something like a agricultural parity price? Well, I'm, I'm not in favor of agriculture subsidies, whether it's through parity or quotas or, or whatever. To me, the solution to this is to make sure that virtually everybody um, has, has income. Uh, we'll talk about the, the different groups and how to get people income. But if, if people have an adequate income, uh, the, the second thing they're going to do with it, maybe the first thing, uh, is they're going to go to grocery stores and buy food. And that's going to create a demand for agricultural products and that's what should keep uh, American agriculture afloat. Now, it may be that in order to make sure that um, competition from abroad is fair, there may be a need to make, um, and this is not an area where I'm an expert in, but I, I, I understand the argument that if there's a minimum wage in this country and it's far higher than the minimum wage in country X or Y or Z, that's producing agricultural products, that even though they have the disadvantage of distance, the extra cost of shipping, they, they are able to 
um, sell at lower prices because they, you know, they underpay their workers. They don't pay them enough. Or lower Even, environmental, uh, or environmental standards. This, this, however, is a problem that's generic to all American sectors. This is true to manufacturing. It's true to services. Should we have rules or quotas or add-on charges to equalize the costs of production between domestic versus foreign competitors? And I, I, I've gone back and forth on that. I have, have different views about it. My belief, however, is that even with some of the requirements that are imposed on American firms, which are imposed you know, on most European firms as well, and are gonna be increasingly imposed, I believe on our biggest competitor just through market forces on China. I think that, that if we had Americans with income making choices within a properly regulated market, I think that by and large, the agriculture sector would do just fine. And efficient producers of agricultural products all up and down that chain, you know, from the person that plants the corn to the person that mills the corn to the store that sells the barrels of wheat to the work that my grandfather used to do as a baker, um, that those that are good and efficient in, in that work and those different lines of work will be able to survive and, and prosper. Well, the, the groups that will be hurt are the, are the agribusinesses that are the, actually the predominant beneficiaries of those subsidies. Archer Daniels Midland and some giant rice growers. Cargill. Um, people, you know, people in the agricultural world try to portray some of these subsidies as benefiting the family farmer. There's some of that, but most of the money goes to these giant ag businesses. Why in the world federal taxes are higher and payments are made to support Archer's Daniel Midland or any large company? is beyond me. This has nothing to do with any valid public purpose. So at the very least, we should restructure subsidies to agriculture so that they go to people who really need the help. But I would argue that we go even deeper, provide economic security, provide good incomes, make sure the market's properly regulated, ward off um, unfair competition, which we should do generally, perhaps a question mark, um, do something to, to define unfair competition as competition from foreign companies that don't pay a decent wage, ignore environmental standards, mistreat their workers and say, well, we're, either we're not gonna let you sell in this country at all in some cases, or if you do, we're gonna tack on a, a surcharge to, to that. Um, which you can reduce by paying your workers properly and dealing with pollution. So basically hold out to them the key to avoiding the, the, the problem. Yeah, and the tariff to prevent dumping that's that's been around since the beginning of this country and the right. antitrust to break up cartels, monopsonists and monopolies, uh, right. anything the unfair trade or unfair uh, competitive practices. So. So the next section is titled New Design, which spells out 10 design principles cutting across all policy and programs that should guide the restructuring of government at every level. And could you talk a little bit about some of these designs with your first principle focusing on adults? Why, why do you begin there? 
Well, I think that um, there's often a tendency to um, segment the people we want to help into different groups, uh, long-term unemployed, or people in rural areas, or people in central cities, or children, or the people with a disability. And um, there are times when, when those distinctions matter, but um, there are a number of reasons why I think that it's better to focus just on adults as the primary unit of analysis. First of all, um, all of the groups that we're talking about are either adults or the children of adults and who are dependent as children on those adults. So if we, if we improve the situation of adults, then we are improving the situation of the children that live with them with rare exceptions. The, the other reason for focusing on adults as a group is that we, we avoid the problem of turning people away because they're the wrong kind of adult. Um, oh, this is a program just for, you know, coal miners in Appalachia, or this is a program just for, um, you know, black mothers in, in Milwaukee, or this is a program just for uh, this group or that group. Now, some of that is okay, but it, it, it shouldn't be to the exclusion of other groups. Now, I, I say this not just in theory, but based on actual experience. In Milwaukee, as I think I, I may have mentioned before, we set up a subsidized employment program. And uh, it was a program that was meant to help not just unemployed people, but people who were either receiving welfare benefits or young men who were in an age category where they were uh, potentially thought to be the, the non-custodial parents of the children whose mothers were on, on welfare and so on. Well, in the effort to get the news out to people about these different categories, a, a lot of people didn't understand the distinctions. So they show up wait in line, and then they get to the head of the line, and then they're told, you're the wrong kind of unemployed poor person. We don't want you. We want the person behind you. So the, the more we can avoid these, you know, I call it public policy vegematic, where we slice and dice the poor into these different groups. And the third reason is simply to avoid, so, so, so the, the so it, it's a matter of fairness. It's also a matter of administrative efficiency. The fewer tests you have to apply, the fewer forms you need, the fewer bureaucrats you need, the less verification you need, the, more, the, the less an auditing agency or the press is gonna find out that you, you neglected to follow the rules and embarrass you as administrator. And the third reason is simply political. Um, Every time you focus on a group other than adults, essentially what you're doing is focusing on a subgroup of adults. Then some other subgroup feels left out. And they may say, well, I'm as deserving as that subgroup. How come they're getting help? I have the same problem, why not me? So, so having 
having eligibility for help being, being broad is, is very important. And that, that political aspect of uh, the harmony of interests, the mass traction instead of the zero sum game where that person's gain is my loss and then you get right. these people fighting after each other. And you'll, and you'll know that most of the New Deal programs uh, did that. I mean, they, they, there were some exceptions and some of those exceptions were regrettable. The Civilian Conservation Corps was limited to young white men. Well, young was okay. You know, people got that. And it, you know, it's an easy thing to enforce, even though actually a fair number of people who weren't old enough tried to fake that they were at least 18 or whatever the cutoff was. The same way people try to get in the army or the Marines by you know, having you know, a bad birth certificate. Um, but they excluded women, they excluded people of color. Um, now the WPA tended not to do that. They, they had programs either for women, which creates a separate problem that, you know, is it separate but equal? Should, there, should, they not, should the programs be not only race neutral, but gender neutral, which I, I would argue they should, but at, at least they were programs that were available for women. And, and in some parts of the country, not the South, but in some parts of the North, some of the programs were open regardless of color. But, you know, so, so, so the New Deal had a mixed record on this, but generally many of their programs were not limited. There's, the minimum wage is the minimum wage for workers, not black workers, women workers, and so on. Now it tended in practice to affect, to help more whites and more men, partly because more men were working than women in, as employees, and partly because the two categories that were excluded were domestic workers and farm workers who tended to be disproportionately women and or people of color. That later changed. But, but again, you, know, you, you, you didn't have an unemployment, uh, a minimum wage rate for Irish Americans that was different than Italian Americans that was different than you know, uh, so, you know, some other group. So, so that, was, that was good. Of course, there's the classification system of employment that has its own problems where you have agricultural workers on temporary visas that have a different uh, protections, I guess, and floors. And then what's just passed in California with the, con the Uber law, um, I'm forgetting the actual number uh, of the referendum that was passed earlier or last year, that says that Uber drivers are contractors, they're not employees. And when you do the full analysis of how much it costs for the car, the time, the gas, everything else, you can sometimes get these classifications making less than minimum wage today. Right, right. Um, the second and third principle that you talk about is the primacy of work and a decent income. And there's a lot of talk right now about this universal basic income could you talk about your thoughts? I, I'm also um, very much in support of work. There's so much work that needs to be done in this country as well. And I'm very concerned about uh, UBI, though I do absolutely think that we need welfare for people who are unemployed. And this is the next question where when the private sector doesn't deliver enough jobs, you know, sometimes the government may have to step in. And that, that may also conflict with um, what you were saying earlier in trying to make sure that um, everyone is employed, I guess. So I, I'm, I'm curious if it, to dive sure. into some of those ideas. Well, I, I think 
there's there's a lot of reasons for focusing on work. Um, you know, w w one is uh, that work is what most adults want. Um, it's an important value to them. There's a, a book uh, written by, uh, I, I believe I've got this right, Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer, uh, in, in which they interview, um, it's, I think it's called a dollar a day, I may have it wrong, but in their interviews with people who are living on, you know, no, almost nothing, a huge percentage of the people they talk to define themselves as workers. It, it's a very important core value for, for many, many people. And I, I can go on at great length about why that is, I mean, part of it is, um, part of it is uh, religious. Uh, you know, I, I, I th I'm not sure I mentioned this in the book, but uh, I, I used to, um, when I was campaigning for county executive in 2004, I had the, the privilege of visiting a lot of black churches and I couldn't give a political speech. Because uh, I, you know, they wouldn't let me, but in any case, I wouldn't want to threaten you know, their status as, as 501c3 charitable organizations. So I gave what I call my 11th, 11th commandment speech. And I would talk about how, I'm here, I'm here to talk about the 11 commandments. You know, you all heard of the 10 commandments, but if you look at the 10 commandments, they're really 11 commandments. And that's because what makes a commandment? Well, it's the word shall. And in either the, four, the third or the fourth commandment, depending on which version you look at, um, it says that uh, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord and on that day thou shalt rest. So two shalls. And then I would ask, um, you know, when, when God handed Moses the, the 10 commandments, he didn't say, well, just ignore one of those shalls. They're equal, they're equally important. So the point I was trying to make and, and what I hope was generally taken as in a humorous way, but serious at the same time, was that work isn't just something people do to get money. It's not just something people do to fulfill, you know, genetic, biological, sort of generic cultural needs. We, we, we're commanded to work. I mean, fewer people go to church or synagogues or mosques or whatever than in the old days, but the obligation to work is important. You know, the, the Bible tells us you must work. It's not, you know, six days, consider doing work if you want to or not, but you got to rest on the seventh. It's equally important. And people absorb that. That's a value that is reflected in not just the iron law of necessity, but in culture. So people want to work to fulfill all these deep cultural, social needs. They, they wanna be able to hold their head up in the market. Um, I was told an anecdote at one of our gatherings on transitional jobs about a, a young man who in the central city in Milwaukee, um, I, I believe he was black, but that doesn't matter really, who uh, went to a grocery store and you know, gave the, um, uh, the cashier more money and she she or he said well here's your change 
and the, and the person said, well, you can keep it now, I'm working. So it, it's a source of dignity and pride. Um, Franklin Roosevelt understood this in a profound way, Harry Hopkins did. Uh, and I think that's part of why a lot of the New Deal programs are so based on work. Um, FDR was someone who always worked, but there was this period when he was, he had this polio this disability and he, he sort of, you know, tried to go back to work and it didn't work out so well. He worked at an insurance company, didn't work out so well. So he, he spent a lot of time sort of idle and I think it got to him. And, and part of why he set up the, the establishment at Warm Springs was to give himself work to do as the, you know, the owner and proprietor of this business. Um, he understood people's need to be self-sufficient, to support themselves, not just the monetary value of it, but the dignity. So why, we, why would you wanna have a system that says, well, we know you think work is important and you have this value, but we can't really think of anything useful for you to do, so here's a check, go home. I mean, I, I think it's almost insulting to have that as a policy, to, to start with the premise that we cannot find enough work for people. So here's a check, we're gonna kind of buy you off, go home. The second problem with it is it's not enough money. You know, if, if in fact we're talking about people who don't have a job, uh, don't have unemployment insurance, don't have disability insurance, even giving them, you know, $2,000 a year or 33,000 for a kid or 3,600 for a young kid, you can't live on that. You need, you need a foundation to go for a stage, a foundation of income upon which these payments function as a supplement. A lot of the advocates of this child guarantee, this child allowance, don't like my saying this, but in essence, that is a de facto earning supplement. It's just another version of the EITC. The difference is the EITC is explicitly based on work. Most it's of the people- income tax credit for anyone. Yeah, here. right. The child tax credit, even if they remove any work, you know, explicit formula in it, is de facto a supplement to earnings because that's how most poor people live. They live on earnings. Um, and if they don't live on earnings, they live on benefits that are associated with work. Social Security disability insurance is an earned benefit. Social Security old age insurance is an earned benefit. What does that mean? That means that people had earnings and they paid a tax. So whether you're an unemployed worker who wants work, a worker who's working, a disabled worker in most cases who, or many cases who had disability benefits, even many people getting SSI were previously workers. This, they don't qualify for SSDI yet. Or if you're getting social security, by definition, you earn for so many quarters. So it, it, part of what I'm arguing here is that adults are workers or want to be workers, think of themselves as workers who want work or are disabled workers or are retired workers. Why fight that? Why not use that value and the, 
the history of the New Deal, which is primarily based on work. Now, some will say, well, all right, but didn't the New Deal create a welfare program? And it's true, it did. But you have to revisit the history of that. When they added the, what they then called the aid to dependent Title IV to the Social Security Act in 1935, it was predominantly for women who were mothers of, who had been married to workers who had either died or abandoned them. So even the ADC program was connected to work. Uh, I don't know how much of it went to women who uh, were themselves not workers and, and for whom the fathers of the kid weren't workers. Um, overwhelmingly, these were, they, these were seen as people who were back then not expected to work because another worker in their life was supposed to support them, but that worker had either dead or jumped on a train and gone west and you know, who knows, maybe married somebody else even. So it's all connected to work. And, and on the other hand, if you were to make a universal basic income enough so that the people who don't have a job got a decent income, and then it was truly a universal basic income, we're not talking about giving people $1,000 a month. We're talking about people giving, giving everybody $3,000 a month. I have a, an appendix to my book that talks about what a decent income is, what an adequate income is. And it's roughly twice the poverty line. Mm -hmm. we, we, to have a system that gives people an adequate income that's twice the poverty line, that is truly a universal income, even if it's taxed for the higher income people, that, that would break the bank. That would be more yeah. than... It would be, you know, four or five, six trillion dollars. It would be more than all federal spending. And, and that's the argument, the floor too. So. Yeah, that's the floor. And, and and you know, and the argument that well, somehow we can pay for that by getting rid of. We won't need welfare programs. Well, that's true, but you would still need health insurance for everybody. The the single biggest welfare program is Medicaid, and you still would need for many people that an earning supplement, and you still would need childcare. So you're not really going to get rid of that much welfare. Uh, so, um, so there are all uh, there are all these reasons for it. And then there's another reason. One of the arguments for a universal income is that, um, well, this is for people to care for their children. All right. And I would argue that most most parents of a child do in fact care for their children, including the overwhelming majority of poor parents. You know, let's stipulate that. But there are some parents who are irresponsible, who, you know, you know, who, who would take money and squander it, who would buy drugs, who would gamble it, or even if they didn't do that, who would plop their kids in front of a TV. And as soon as we just give money to people and say, we're assuming you're a good parent, the cry will come out, well, let's find out if they really are. And we will have audits and we will have journalists saying, aha, we're giving $3,000 a month or whatever it is to X or Y or Z. And look what they're doing with their children. They're beating them. They're neglecting them. They're feeding them junk food. They're putting them in front of bad TV shows. They're doing all this kind of stuff. And then you come into what they used to have and which Harry Hopkins hated, a system of defining the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor. Whose standards, how much enforcement, 
how many inspections? Sudden inspections. But if you don't do that, then you are indeed giving money to irresponsible parents. Now, it's one thing if we're saying to people, we're paying you for work. And after you get the money, you, like everyone else, are free to do with the money you've earned the way you want. And if you really abuse and neglect your kids, child welfare will come in and do something about it. But there's a lot less pressure if we're not just giving the money to people to have any kind of oversight. And, and frankly, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't really like the idea of a, of a program that basically creates an invitation for Big Brother to come in and monitor people's lives. Morally means test you and everything yeah. else. It brings, us, it brings us back to a lot of what we objected to in the old welfare system. And, and Ford had his own thing too, where he'd go in and make sure that any of his workers uh, had the, the proper housing and family uh, life in, inside their home, which is very invasive and, and really cuts across freedom. And I, and I would like just to add too, because Andrew Yang is one of the people who has really popularized this UBI, a U, universal basic income. And his view, though, is $1,000 a month, but let's cut out all of the different types of social services. And when you add up a lot of the social services that are used from people, it, it sometimes totals more than 1000 a month for at least those most in need. So it, in a way, it's a backdoor to undermine even more social protections, at least from, from his campaign that I saw. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm in favor of a system of, of assuring people income through employment primarily, but also through employment-based programs like disability insurance and social security that would enable us to justify getting rid of means-tested programs. But I still think we need many of those social services anyway. People should be able to get, you know, Head Start, early childcare education, uh, regardless of, of poverty. Uh, I, I would love to see Medicaid disappear, but be blended into a universal healthcare plan. Yeah. So how much you really can get rid, uh, I think is a little bit of a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a little bit of a Ponzi scheme going on there. So I, I wanna combine your, your next two parts um, yeah. where one, you talk about economic security, which is kind of what you're just referring to. And you quote, to make economic security complete, American government must ensure that every resident who wants to work has easy access to full-time employment, earns a decent wage and ends up with an income well above the poverty line. Right. And then the next part is an effective market, uh, which is, in some ways, like how do you create a workforce that is self-sufficient and people who can find a job? Could you, yeah, bring bring those two up, and then what is the government's role in providing sure. employment where the market does not? Well, this is this takes us back to the future. I mean, the the New Deal was all about providing work-based economic security, as we've discussed, but they drilled it down to five or six specific policies. Um, and some of those were abandoned or discontinued, it's a better word. And some of them have frayed. And the heart of my book, the heart of you know, a New Deal 3.0 is to uh, construct a, a new and improved work-based system of economic security. So what would that be? The, 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 the most important th thing to do 
the biggest missing piece is a, a, a large permanent federal subsidized jobs program or transitional jobs program as it's now often called. And I think that's the wording I use in my book um, that would look a lot like kind of a blend of the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, the Civil Works Administration, the Works Progress Administration. And I, I, I can get into the weeds about the distinctions among them, but what they all had in common was the idea that they, they offered work, useful work, very valuable work to unemployed and underemployed people and paid them either a wage or the equivalent of a wage for the work that they did. We urgently need a program like that. And I'm happy to say that there actually is a program in Congress that has been advanced called the Jobs for Economic Recovery Act. Um, it's been uh, advanced in the, in the Senate. Uh, it's currently now Senate Bill 784 uh, by Senators Wyden, uh, Baldwin, uh, Senator Wyden of Oregon, Senator Baldwin of Wisconsin, Senator Van Hollen of Maryland, Senator Bennett of Colorado and, and Senator Booker of New Jersey. And it's now been co-sponsored uh, last time I looked also by Senator uh, Gillibrand uh, of New York. In the House, the bill is HR 1962, uh, introduced by Senator Dan, uh, excuse me, Representative Congressman Danny Davis and uh, my Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Gwen Moore. And this legislation would create a vehicle for providing wage paying useful jobs to a very large number of unemployed people until they can be absorbed in the private sector. They'd be paid a wage. They would pay taxes. They would pay social security taxes uh, and they would do useful work. Again, I could spend a lot of time in the details of that. The, the bill is about 50 pages long. So I'll, I'll add it to the show notes for sure. Yeah, right. Please, please do. And I can send you the links to it. But, but the, the, the big missing piece in the New Deal is such a jobs program. Uh, we had all those you know, alphabet soup programs in the New Deal. When the war came, when World War II came, they were discontinued. They were phased out. And uh, we didn't need them during the war. Every, everybody who could literally fog a mirror could get a job. Um, and, and this is when the government began heavily recruiting groups that were left out, women and minorities. Uh, this is where R Rosie the Riveteer was not working, making rivets in 1936, but by 1944, she was desperately needed. Um, and then after the war, as I, I talk about the history in my book, the world economy was essentially the American economy. We had, a, we had no foreign competition. Europe was, in ruins, Russia was, you know, destroyed, and even then, because of their socialist, or you know, their communist economy, they they weren't competing with us. China was even worse shape. Japan was in terrible shape. So we, we owned the world economy, and again, there was a huge amount of of employment available for people, even though there were periods of recession. Um, but things began to change and now we're back in many ways to a more normal economy. It's, it's normal for Europe to have strong economies. It's normal for Japan to be an economic powerhouse. Historically, for many centuries, China was you know, 
falling. But in the long history, which of course from a Chinese perspective is the same as simply saying history, um, they, were, they were the dominant power in, in the world economy for centuries when people in Europe were you know, running around in, uh, as, as Benjamin Disraeli said, painted in blue and worshiping stones, the Chinese had the sophisticated economy as did India. So now those nations are catching up and resuming their historic place in the world economy. And it's created competition. And the combination of that with this, you know, this technology that you and I are now using, you know, incredible technology that is highly disruptive has caused a lot of jobs to disappear. New jobs are being created, but they're not necessarily in the, the same place for the same people. Um, we have these ups and downs of the number of jobs available, the number of unemployed. It's, it's a very volatile market. And then even for many people who do have jobs, a lot of them are part-time, temporary, you know, gig economy jobs. So we need to have, as part of the foundation, a government subsidized jobs program. Then we need to make sure that, that the minimum payment you get for that work is, is, is higher than 7.25 an hour. Federal minimum wage should be clearly raised to at least 10, 11, $12 an hour. 15 is, is the end game and then adjust it for inflation. Even with that, to get to an adequate income, we need to have earning supplements. Um, what about people who aren't working? Well, I would argue that if you have a disability, you should be in disability insurance and your income should be way above the poverty line. Then the floor should be raised a lot. Ditto with social security. If you work for years and years and years, often decades, and you're on social security, but for some reason your benefit isn't high enough, it should be raised. No retiree should be below the poverty line. They all should be getting an income well above the poverty line. Um, well, what about people then who, who have a, a young child? I would argue that they should have access to paid leave uh, so that they can in essence, get the equivalent of their earnings through a paid leave program until they're able to return to work. Remember, it's called paid leave. It's not, it's not called paid permanent income. So the premise of paid leave is you have this unique event that is for, for women biologically, um, a, a, you know, a, a huge challenge. They don't call it labor for nothing. And uh, it's obviously a, a huge disruption, especially a first child, but a second and third as well. So getting a leave, similarly, if you've adopted a child, and I would argue that having leave for circumstances involving helping a parent or you know, a relative adjust to a new home, assisted living, a nursing home, let's let people take those leaves, but then return to work. Um, and I also would argue we need a better system for helping people build up savings uh, to supplement their social security better than we have. Many states are now putting in place what foreign countries have already done. We're doing it on a voluntary basis. Other countries do it on a mix of voluntary and mandatory of, of, of saving money that goes into, in, in essence, a, uh, an IRA that goes with you as you go from employer to employer. I think uh, California has adopted this, Washington, Oregon, Illinois. It, it, it actually has bipartisan support, it's certainly if it's voluntary. 
So the point is we, we, we lay this foundation of economic security underneath the overwhelming majority of Americans and their children. Um, and then we say, now go forth with an adequate income and enter into a labor market that is regulated to protect you and everybody else from environmental harm, uh, from, from harm in the workplace, whether it's a factory or an office, the products you buy, whether in a store or online, shouldn't you know, burst into flame or fall apart or you know, leak in various ways. Um, you know, we, we don't want any cars that are unsafe at any speed, to quote the title of Ralph Nader's book. Um, and we don't want, you know, to go back to the environment, we, we don't want spring to be silent because all the, all the critters, all the birds and all the other animals have been silenced by DDT or other chemicals. The environment should be safe, workplaces should be safe, products should be safe. And then services should be uh, safe. When, you're, when you buy a stock, buy a bond, buy a mutual fund, the entities, when you buy insurance, the entities that sell you these things need to comply with pretty rigorous standards. But you know, this is then a proper market with everybody participating in it, everyone bringing their adequate resources into it, and then making, making the choices that they want so that it's a democratic market with a small d. It's the people's market. It's not what government wants the market to be. It's certainly not what the vendors want the market to be. That, that's what Adam Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations against. A lot of people think he was arguing for laissez-faire, and he certainly was talking about the, the complex way in which the market sets prices, the so-called unseen hand, and allocates resources. But the, the one group that he was railing against in, in the, the Wealth of Nations were conspiracies on the part of manufacturers and other companies to restrain trade and artificially seek rent by fixing prices. Uh, so that's, that's an unacceptable market. And I would argue it's not acceptable for, for government to come in with its big thumb and say, we want less of this because we want more of this. We've determined what's better for you, consumers and investors, than you're able to determine for yourself. So that's my answer to the, the last two questions. Yeah. So being conscious of time, I have a few more questions left. And I do, I, I am curious about your view on internal improvements by the government where the public sector is looking at, okay, this long-term capital investment doesn't have a high enough return compared to the volatility in the derivatives market or something like that. So we're not going to put our money into a Apollo program that has a 10 to one return, but it takes 30 years to get back to you. When you look at like the Public Works Administration, the PWA under FDR's New Deal, they built tremendous electricity projects, tremendous um, roads, bridges, airports, hospitals, schools. And when you look at the Chinese uh, model right now, they've, they've built over 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in the last 10, 12 years. And we're having problems building just a little section in California. We've forgotten how to build here. What is the role of government in investing in public works? Well, I think that, I think that government should um, invest heavily in good public works. And let me just pause for a minute on good, 
a lot of what the PWA did and a lot of what was done in the interstate highway building era, um, as Robert Moses's, uh, you know, terrible damage to New York City shows and uh, Robert Cairo's book documents, a, a lot of those big projects did damage and actually did more harm than good. Um, some of the WPA project, PWA projects, uh, you know, turned, you know, beautiful functional rivers into sort of, you know, ch channels that did, uh, you know, stop the salmon from swimming upstream, destroyed wildlife, um, caused flooding in some cases. So I think that especially when water is involved, we need to be careful. And when roads are concerned, we, sh we should not be running big roads through the middle of cities. That was a, a terrible choice that's done a huge amount of damage. So I think we need to have um, great environmental and other concern about what are the right projects. Having said that, on the whole, I'm very much in favor of all kinds of public work investment, internal improvements. You, you quoted Lincoln earlier, that's part of what made him a Whig. You know, he was a great disciple of Henry Clay and internal improvements. The, the one thing that I would differ on, I think from some people, not, not too many economists, but unless they're, unless they're paid by a particular industry, but I, I think that, that ultimately the cost of public improvement should be borne by the users of those improvements. Uh, the people that, you know, government needs to weigh in to design, construct, locate, maybe even initially finance um, airports, harbors, roads, bridges, uh, high-speed internet, high-speed trains, all of that. But um, we should aim to have the users through user fees pay both the, the capital costs and the operating costs. I mean, the, 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 you know, government can borrow the money, but the cost of paying it off should be put to the users. And, and obviously the operating cost should be built into the fees. The, the, the more utilities, the, the more internal investments are seen as utilities, the better off everything will be. Uh, compare our roads, for example, to our um, electric grid and, national, and natural gas grid. Now, again, I'm not saying the electric grid and the natural gas grid are perfect. They are often, they've often done environmental damage. Um, you know, some of the, some of what they've done is ugly uh, and so on. But they do have one advantage, which is that by and large, under the aegis of public utility commissions, users pay the cost. And one can have a good argument about whether the right users are paying the right costs. But, uh, and there is probably still some tax subsidy involved in some cases. But by and large, these are, whether they're publicly owned or privately owned, users pay these costs. This isn't true for roads. Uh, there's some user fees for some roads like the turnpikes. And we have this sort of, I would argue, bogus user fee called the gas tax, which never had a, a, a direct relationship to actual use of the road. And increasingly with, with vehicles that get vastly different amounts of mileage on a gallon, and some of course don't even use gas at all, the, 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 the relationship between 
buying a gallon of gas and how much tax you pay for the roads has been almost completely severed. So we really don't have a user fee system for our roads, our bridges, and we should. And if we did, it would have a it would be a much better system. Um, people would be much more pe people would have to pay the cost as they do for electric and gas of maintaining the plant, fixing that system. And, and if the fees were adjusted as they should be for time of use, we wouldn't be building as many roads. In fact, we'd be tearing some down that have, a, have limited use um, uh, as we've done in Milwaukee, as they did with the Embargadero Freeway in San Francisco, as they did with the West Side Highway in New York, as they're talking about doing, I believe in Houston. Um, so, so my answer is a bit complex. I'm all for the right kind of public, of internal improvements of infrastructure. Uh, let's do it, let's do it big, let's do it fast. And wherever possible, let's make users pay in proportion to the intensity of the frequency of use and what you might call the intensity of the use. If you put more, more pollutants into the water, you should pay more than the ordinary person who just takes a shower or uses the toilet. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you're driving a heavier vehicle, you should pay more per mile than a person driving a lighter vehicle. If you're driving during a time of high congestion and you're, you, you, know, you should pay a, a congestion fee as we do for some electric utilities in the middle of summer so as to avoid building a plant, a new plant whose only purpose is to provide peak capacity. Uh, so these are, you know, fairly standard utility price setting 101 rules. Let's apply them to all these internal investments. Is there any concern that some of it may be regressive taxation on those who are least among us? Well, the, the solution to that is to go back to the prior uh, discussion. Um, we need to have a policy that makes it possible for everybody to have the work, the earnings, and the income that enables them to pay true market prices for food, for you know, for mortgage loans, for, um, for for and for all their utilities, including the ones I'm talking about: gas, electric, I would argue, road, uh, and so forth. Um, the, the the way to solve the progressivity issue is to um, enable everybody to pay real prices um, and, and, and have plenty left over for saving money and saying they're you know, buying books for their kids and going to the movies and going to the state fair and all of that, uh, rather than have a complicated system that basically says, well, we're gonna, we're gonna subsidize this user or that user. That leads to an endless set of subsidies. Shall we subsidize veterans regardless of income? Shall we subsidize seniors? You know, I, I'm a senior. I get a subsidized pass to the national parks. Uh, you know, of course, I, I took advantage of it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't need a subsidy to go to Yellowstone. I can afford to pay the same price. W why should a lower income person have to pay more to see Old Faithful than I pay? It, it, it's, it's not fair. It's not a fair system. Um, so, you know, it, it, so we should get rid of all these subsidies. Half of the bills that are introduced in the Wisconsin legislature are bills to give some sort of break, a property tax break, a sales tax break, an income tax break, 
somebody's favorite, uh, uh, you know, favorite industry or, 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 or pet cause. I, I mentioned pets because I think it's the case that certain kinds of haircuts, haircuts for human beings are treated differently than haircuts for animals in Wisconsin. I think that's the case, you know. It, some pet store lobby got that. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous, all the tax breaks that are given, regardless of income. The, the, the regressivity that we have in our tax system is not fundamentally based on having poor people pay market prices. It's mostly on these huge tax breaks and giveaways that let the rich pay the same effective marginal tax rate as you know, working class and middle class people. That's, that's, the, that's the problem. I, I actually don't favor a 70 or 90% you know, marginal tax rate. I'd be happy if the total tax rate was you know, when you add all the taxes together, federal, state, and so on. I'd be happy if it were 35 or 40% and paid, actually paid, which is what we have now is we've got you know, this, this image of, oh, the rate should be 50, 60, 70%. But unless you get rid of all the exemptions, deductions, and exclusions that the rich and their accountants and lawyers take advantage of, we're never going to get anywhere close to that. And the IRS chief was on record, I think, just two weeks ago saying that the enforcement of taxes in the IRS for high earners that were missing potentially up to a trillion dollars over the course of, uh, I forget how many years he said. So even just basic enforcement on top of the removing the, some of these loopholes and, and trying to create a more right. equitable system. We, we, we need better enforcement so that people don't illegally take advantage of the loopholes. But the fundamental problem is the loopholes themselves. Yeah. The, the, the problem with the loopholes, the big problem is not that they are illegally used. The problem is that they're legal in the first place. So this has been an incredible conversation. I'm going to make sure that I put the links into the notes about how people can get a copy of Putting Government in Its Place, the case for a New Deal 3.0. So in closing, uh, I would like to end on a little more optimistic note. And where do you see opportunity and hope in 2021 and beyond? And how can people engage with you? Well, I'm, I'm always happy to uh, uh, you know, talk to people or, or correspond with them. So um, you know, my, my email address is uh, D-R-I-E-M-E-R-M-I-L at gmail.com. Um, I, I think we have a possibility of, of, uh, of hopeful reform. I, I close my book. I think the, uh, the last uh, title of the last chapter is Getting There. Mm -hmm. But I, I begin that by um, uh, talking about how American history has been one in which things go on, often get worse, and then impossible good things happen that nobody would have imagined were possible. In, in 1774, no one would have imagined that these quarreling states with ragtag militias, you know, from New Hampshire down to Georgia, could ever possibly come to agreement, organize an effective army, appoint a competent general, and defeat one of the most powerful armies in the world and create 
the, the first democratic republic for all of its flaws, for all of its slavery and exclusions and so on, the first extensive republic uh, in, in the history of the world. There had been nothing like it before. There had been small scale republics, but nothing like the United States of America. It, it truly was amazing. And uh, we, we should give a lot of credit to people who aren't often thanked. We, we tend to mention Washington and Jefferson, but they're, they're great. My, my other heroes are John Adams and I think James Wilson, who played an important role in the Constitutional Convention. Um, in 1860, no one would have imagined that only three years later, slavery would be legally abolished in the, in the states in the deepest South, the ones that had rebelled. No one would have imagined that in 1865, a 13th Amendment would be passed that ended slavery legally even though it took decades to truly end all the vestiges of slavery and, and even decades more to end, end segregation. And we're still fighting that. But no one, in, when they elected Abraham Lincoln, when he snuck into Washington, crammed into a sleeping car because they were worried he would be shot at even then, and, and the sleeping cars were too small for him. No, no one imagined in March of 1861 that within, you know, just a few years, slavery would be abolished. It was astounding. No one imagined in 1932 that in 1935, we would have um, a giant jobs program, that we would have a federal minimum wage, that we would have unemployment insurance, that we would have social security, that we would have the right of workers to form unions and bargain collectively. That those were unimaginable ideas. And yet Franklin Roosevelt, with the help of um, Henry Wallace and Harry Hopkins, Frances Perkins was extraordinary. The first, she's often talked to about as the first woman cabinet member. That, that was the least of her extraordinary achievements. She was just amazing. Um, and Harold Ickes and others, many others were able to create the original New Deal. Had that not been there, there would have been no expansion of it. There would have been no great society. There would have been no Medicare. Uh, none of the things that I talked about before perhaps would have happened like a federal legal services corporation. And I, I wouldn't have you know, written this, this book a new deal, about a New Deal 3.0. So that was an extraordinary feat. And, and you know, I can go on and on about it. Um, you know, when, when John Kennedy said in 1961 or 62, we're gonna send a man to the moon and bring him back safely within a decade. People, a lot of people thought that was, you know, crazy. Some people still think the moon really is, is fake <laughs> in the first place. But um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that American history is this history of things going up slowly or down slowly, sometimes even down bad. But then we have these moments of, where we leap forward to a new plateau of progress. And I do think that with Joe Biden as president, with this Congress, um, with frankly a lot of references to the New Deal, to Franklin Roosevelt, to Francis Perkins and Harry Hopkins, that we have a shot at creating uh, what Biden himself referred to as a new paradigm. In, in my book, I, I talk, as you probably remember how Franklin Roosevelt in one of his campaign speeches in Pittsburgh sort of 
referred somewhat fuzzily as, as he often did to the need for a, a complete change of concept of what the federal government would do. And he didn't know what it was gonna be. None of his advisors knew. He had this happy expression, the new deal. Nobody knew what it meant, but it emerged in, in the way I just described. Biden, just before going to Pittsburgh himself, ironically, talked about, we need a new paradigm. He actually said this three times in his first press conference. We need a new paradigm. We need a new paradigm. We need a new paradigm. I, I like to think that what I've written about in my book is an outline of what that new paradigm could be. But, um, you know, like Roosevelt and his aides and like the congressional supporters they had, uh, we, we need to be creative and, and effective in turning that from an idea, a set of ideas and expression into that nitty gritty of legislation and appropriations and budgets to make it come to life. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity to talk. Really appreciate it, Evan. David Reamer, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And let's let's make your book a reality and uh, organize the political will to make it happen. Thank you.